Throughout the course of uh, each of our lives, there are several major historical events that can happen in the course of 70, 80 years. Uh, no doubt uh, many things have, have happened already to you that uh, you would say that's, that's a big event. Um, and I think most of us, even regardless of our age, can remember at least a few uh, major events in history just within our own lifetime. Some of you might remember watching Neil Armstrong step on the moon for the first time. Maybe some of you would remember the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Sometimes in the moment, the, the, the moment is so uh, captivating that we can recognize that what we're witnessing is really big. This is, this is huge. We all remember where we were on 9-11. Right, I think. Well, we're actually getting to. We've gotten far enough away from it that there's people who don't remember. Uh, they weren't anywhere on 9/11 because they didn't exist yet. But I think those of us who were there, we can. That was a big deal, right? We can. We, it wasn't just a, an accident. We could recognize something big is happening right now. But then there are other times when events that are equally as important, or maybe even more important, happen right before our eyes. But we never grasp its impact. We never get how much it will affect our lives. Those of you who remember, I, I wasn't there, but uh, the, the beginning days of the Vietnam War. I, I don't, I don't know that people thought that it was going to be as extensive as it ended up becoming. But that was a, those were those were monumental days. The day you got married, I doubt many of us recognized how big a decision that was as we stood at the altar and said, I do. Daniel, it's a big day. Daniel's getting married next, so grasp it. It's significant, Dan. Um, even just the little decisions that we make about where we're going to go to school, uh, where, who we're going to marry, that seem to be maybe one event, one significant choice, but then they have ripple effects. They continue to affect our lives, and they continue to affect new things, new events that happen in our lives. Well, as we finished in chapter 15, Jesus uh, was uh, on what I call the Gentile interlude. And for 15, uh, for all of chapter 15, he was, uh, well, no, oh, not all of it, most of chapter 15, he was uh, in Gentile territory where he uh, encountered people with great faith, uh, with humble faith, there he showed mercy. He showed uh, his power through feeding the 4,000, the miracles of healing, taught the Gentiles. But now as he comes back to Jewish shores, uh, he is met with the familiar faces of unbelief and opposition, namely in the Pharisees and this somewhat new group, the Sadducees. The Pharisees, we see, have allied themselves with the Sadducees, and they have assembled together to tempt and to discredit Christ. Now, history tells us that these groups were both politically and religiously opposed to one another. They were as different as they could be uh, from each other. But they, their mutual hatred for Jesus united them. It's kind of the old statement, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what we kind of see uh, happening here. 
Uh, It brought them together, as uh, one writer puts it, to form an unholy alliance to deal with a teacher who in different ways threatened each of them. Verse 1 reads, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we know a lot about the Pharisees already. We've, we've encountered them. It seems to be that whenever Jesus encounters opposition, the Pharisees are, are at the forefront of it. Uh, they're possibly his most prominent antagonists. They regularly challenge his authority, his miracles. Um, they're marked by an emphasis, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 15, they're marked by an emphasis on their religious tradition instead of God's commands. They had drawn uh, very tight corners around God's law and actually required the people to do more than God actually required of them. They were strict and they were proud of it. The, the Pharisees saw Jesus as then a man who broke all of the rules, their rules, not God's rules. They saw Jesus as breaking the, the, the traditions, disregarding their deeply held customs. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, were, were, were kind of everything opposite a Pharisee could be. They were, they were the, the primarily the wealthy ruling class. Uh, the Pharisees would have been the, 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 the class of the people. They were the people's religious uh, choice. But the, uh, the, the Sadducees were the, the wealthy class. They were the politically uh, influencing class. They were comprised of that upper crust of Jewish society. They had all the political power and, and the connections to Rome. And if the Pharisees were characterized by their self-righteousness, then we could, we could understand that the Sadducees were characterized by self-indulgence. They, they, where the Pharisees drew uh, tight corners around God's law, the Sadducees would draw sweeping circles around it and giving themselves lots and lots of room to do what they wanted and still feel like they were in, in you know, doing the right thing. So we have the one extreme that was too tight, and the other extreme that was too loose, where the Pharisees maintained the re- relig- re- rigorous religious rules, the Sadducees uh, were very, uh, very, very broad in their un- what they required of themselves and of people, giving themselves kind of room to do what they wanted to do. But as different in these two groups were, they were united in a mission to put an end to the ministry of this Jesus of Nazareth. So in verse number 1, they approach Him with a request for a sign. They want Jesus to produce a heavenly sign, a sign literally in the sky. They wanted something visible and clear and compelling that displayed Jesus' power, kind of marked who he says who he is, or maybe who the people say he is. Or Matthew writes, though, there, that, and he tells us as we're reading it, that they didn't intend to know the truth. They weren't asking for a sign in order to believe. They were seeking a sign to, they were, they were asking to disprove. In, uh, we've already seen how the Pharisees would take the signs that Jesus had offered, the miracles that he'd done, and they would credit them to Satan. They would, uh, they would, uh, do everything they could to reject, uh, the miracles. And, uh, like their forefathers in Egypt and the wilderness, they were asking for signs that would compel them to see this is God. This is from 
God. Though it's unlikely that they actually hoped Jesus could answer their request. But just as before, we've read this, uh, I think it's back in chapter 12, Jesus knows their wicked intentions. He knows what they're trying to do, and He's unwilling to play the game. And He says in verses uh, 2-4, through we see that He rejects those who so often have rejected Him. Look at verse 2, if you will. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus responds that although they, they, can, they can interpret earthly signs regarding, regarding the weather, they can't recognize or interpret heavenly signs or spiritual signs, which is what they're asking for. But notice here that what Jesus is saying is that there are already signs present. They just couldn't interpret them. As Carson says, the, the proof that they cannot discern the sign is that they ask for a sign. There's signs all around them, right in front of them, and they're saying, give us a sign. He says, you can't even see the ones you got. I'm not giving you any more. Jesus calls them an evil generation, resembling the very opposite of the character of the God they supposedly worshipped. He calls them an adulterous people, like an unfaithful spouse who breaks the covenant with God. Jesus says that only an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Yet, no sign is going to be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. You remember back in chapter 12, he says the same thing to the Pharisees. Then, he was saying in connection, or they were asking for a sign in connection to his casting out of demons. And his response then was exactly as it is here, uh, that no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. Now, if we go back to chapter 12, which we won't do, but you can go back uh, later and see, he explains a little bit more what exactly the sign of Jonah is. It, it gives the details a little bit, but just kind of summing it up, it speaks of his future death and his resurrection. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, uh, and, and he will be three days in the heart of the earth before coming back to life. Now, that was a sign that I don't think that the Jews, specifically these religious leaders, would have really appreciated. We don't want that kind of a sign. Because if you think about what Jesus is saying here, Jonah was sent to preach a message of judgment. And it was sent to preach a message of judgment not to Jews, but to Gentiles. We already know how they feel about Gentiles. Read the first part of chapter 15 if you're not sure. But that Jonah was sent to, to give them a sign, and it wasn't repent. It was judgment is coming. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet the people of Nineveh did repent, and God showed them mercy. The Jews uh, wouldn't have wanted to see themselves as a wicked Gentile city like Nineveh. They would not have wanted to uh, recognize the fact that they were in danger of God's judgment. God's wrath. They prided themselves on being the chosen people. The separated and sanctified. The word Pharisee means separated ones. They were the holy ones. They were the people of God in their minds. But they had rejected God because they had rejected God's Son. They had rejected God's message. 
And unlike the people of Nineveh, they would not repent of their sin. As a whole, the nation of Israel would not repent. And unlike the people of Nineveh, they would not be shown mercy. And after Jesus rejects their request for a sign, He then rejects them entirely by withdrawing away. I see as Jesus, it seems as Matthew is telling us a story, although it may not have been so immediate, it seems that Jesus steps off the boat and here these guys are waiting with this with this tempt, with this test. But Jesus is the one who leaves them. He doesn't wait for them to walk away. He withdraws from them. They were the blind guides whom Jesus had told His disciples to leave alone. Because regardless of the signs that they had already given, been given, they weren't going to believe. Their hearts were hardened. It says, similar to what Jesus says in Luke 16.31, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. They just won't believe. And so as they head back across the water, Jesus and His disciples, we see that this interaction is still fresh in Jesus' mind. And what happens in verses 5 through 12 is kind of hard to under, to, to, to determine if this happened while they were traveling or once they got back onto the other side. And I don't think it really, it really bears any importance to understanding the, 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 the purpose of the story here. But this is a fresh, uh, memory in Jesus' mind. And he's thinking about this interaction with the Pharisees and with the scribes and he's thinking, or with the, with the Sadducees. And, and he's thinking about how these two diametrically opposed Religious systems have united to, uh, to, to try to discredit him and, and try to seek for a sign. And he's concerned, not because of them and what they're going to do, but he's concerned for his disciples. He's discerned for his guys. And he gives the words there, uh, in uh, beginning of verse number five, uh, there, beware the, the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what I think he's doing is he takes a cue from something that happened with the disciples, and that was, as we've already read, they forgot to bring enough food. Now, Mark tells us that they had one loaf of bread, and if we remember how big these loaves were, we're not talking about enough to really give, you know, feed 12, 13 people on a, on a boat. And so they pretty much didn't have any bread. But, and, and, but if you look in verse number 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is concerned for his men. He warns them of the danger of the leaven or the yeast of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so we see first, though, through Jesus' warning that the disciples have need of discernment. He says, watch, beware, watch out, guys, for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Pay attention. Be on guard for it. But the problem is that while Jesus is thinking about their hearts and minds, the disciples were thinking about their empty stomachs. And like some of us do when the preacher goes a little bit too far past 12 and we start to think about what's coming next and we, we, uh, we get distracted. They'd forgotten to bring bread and that seemed to be all they could think about. What are we going to eat? I'm starting to get hangry. And it says in verse number 7, they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Now this could be read in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, as we see it here, and in, in, in how, how I read it, it's a declarative statement, kind of saying, Jesus, we don't have any bread. Why, why do we need to worry about leaven? We don't have bread. Leaven isn't, we're not just going to eat leaven on our own. If you're reading it in, in uh, the King James, or if you're reading it in a, in a New American Standard, it, it, it reads as a causal statement. It's because 
uh, he, we have taken no bread. Jesus is telling us this because we forgot bread. They're, they're receiving it kind of as a rebuke, saying he's, he's chastening us because we forgot to bring bread. He's mad because now he's not going to be able to eat. He's mad. John, your fault. You're supposed to have brought the bread. No, it was Peter's. It was Peter's job this time. It was his turn to do the shopping. No, Matthew. And then they can go around and they're discussing this. What is, what does he mean? We have no bread. And clearly, they're, they're concerned with their physical needs and possibly even disturbed or bothered by a mistake that they had made. But in doing so, what Jesus is actually teaching them goes right over their heads and they miss it. And, and of course, this is not what Jesus is saying. And so, now, after we see that there is a need for discernment, we see that there is a need for reminders. Verse number 8, But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. It's like they're the, the most often used term for the disciples. Little faith ones. They, they, they have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Jesus, who knows their thoughts, possibly is hearing them even whisper to one another, now rebukes them for not understanding what he said in the first place. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? We talked about this a little bit a little bit last Sunday and and and, and when he fed the 4000 and they they still didn't understand the 5000. What had happened which seemed like it happened just a few days ago because it's so close in our in our text it could have been a little bit longer ago, but this is a lot closer to that event and Jesus says in verse number 9, don't do you not yet perceive do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? And he, not only does he remind them here of how he fed so many with so little, he reminds them that they had so much left over. How is it you fail to understand? I didn't speak about bread. I sense frustration in Jesus' voice here. How are you guys not getting it yet? Still, you don't believe, you don't trust, don't you understand? Don't you remember what I could do with only five loaves and two fish for 5,000 plus people? Don't you remember how much we had left over, that there was actually more left over than what we started with? Don't you remember more recently when we were with the Gentiles up on the mountain and there were 4,000 men, not including women and children, and there we only had seven loaves and a few fish. And what did I do with them? And if we read it in Mark's version, he asks them these questions and they answer, how many, how many basket loaves did you take back up? Seven. Or how many breads did you have? Seven. And how many basket loaves did you take back up? And he, and he goes on and, he, and, he, and, he's, and he's, he's reminding them of his past faithfulness. He's reminding them of the power that he has shown them time and time again. He's never let them down. He's always come through for them, no matter what the odds. Yet once again, they seem to have forgotten and they needed to be reminded. Not only had they misunderstood his present teaching about the loaves, Beware the, 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 the leaven. This shows that they also missed his, the point of his miraculous feedings. Because I think one of the main things that the disciples were supposed to get from the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 was that God is not limited by your lack of resources. God does not need a, a large supply of food to be able to help a lot of people. He can do anything with anything. If, if Jesus could fill the bellies of 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, 
Imagine what he could do for 12 disciples with one loaf of bread or with nothing at all. He wasn't concerned with their lack of food. But now he was dealing with something far more significant. He was dealing with their present priorities. Jesus was teaching them an important spiritual truth, but all they could think about was food, was bread. Carson writes, Jesus had already denounced the Pharisees and Sadducees for their particular teaching that demanded manipulative signs instead of believing in the bountiful evidence already supplied. And now the disciples are perilously close to the same unbelief in Jesus' person and miracles. Jesus knows that these are the guys that are going to carry on the mission. Jesus recognizes and He's trained these guys to be the, the ones who will lead the church in its infant stages. They're going to be the ones that break forth into the, into the Gentile world with the gospel of salvation for all nations. But they've got to learn this lesson of trusting Christ for their physical needs because there's going to be far greater things to trust Christ for in the future. And if you can't figure this little thing out, you're in trouble. They're dangerously close to the corruption of the leaven that he was warning them about in the first place. But then we see that they, 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 a gracious repetition. I didn't notice this the first few times that I read through this, but now I can't not see it as I read through this. After rebuking the men for their unbelief and their little faith and reminding them of his past faithfulness, Jesus repeats his warning to them word for word. He doesn't say it in another way so that they get it. With the exception of the first two or three words, watch and beware, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, if you're, if you're a teacher, you know that when the student doesn't get it one way, usually saying it the same way doesn't always, oh, okay, we can't beat it into them. You've got to try another direction. But that's not what Jesus does here. He said it one way, and it went way over their heads. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. Guys, why do you think I'm talking about bread? And then he goes back and says it the exact same way he had said it before. Jesus was not going to always spoon-feed them the truth. He was training them to think deeply and to do the hard work themselves to consider and to understand His message. They needed to meditate and ponder His words. Their earlier discussion, when they were talking about the first time, and they were like, why is He talking about we have no bread? Uh, that was not necessarily a bad thing. The discussion part, the, the fact that they were thinking about it and they were processing it and, 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 and talking about it amongst themselves. In fact, I wonder if Jesus hadn't said that with an expectation that they would first understand what He was saying and then talk about what that means. Because that's a very, a very uh, unusual statement to make which, which begs discussion. It begs a question. It begs some clarification. But their little faith had led their discussion down a bad road and to a very bad conclusion. So Jesus, very patiently and very mercifully, repeats His warning. And then, verse 12, then they understood that He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now they get it. Now they see that Jesus wasn't worried about what they were going to eat because He could have provided for that very easily. He was dealing with what they might allow to creep into their hearts. It wasn't about what filled their bellies, but what filled their minds. You've noticed I like to read D.A. Carson 
he has a lot of insight. I want to share something else that I, that I read from him. He says that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees to which Jesus refers is an attitude of unbelief toward divine revelation that could not perceive Jesus to be the Messiah, but that tried to control and tame the Messiah they claimed to await. And this is what Jesus wanted his men to avoid. Falling into the same uh, trap that the, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were drawing them into. Doubting the Messiah. Trying to control Him and fit Him into their box. Now in both scenarios, the, the scenario with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even here with His disciples, there were big things that were happening. But largely were unnoticed by the people. For the Pharisees, it was the signs of the times. Jesus said you can't interpret it. For the disciples, it was the need to beware and to be ready. Because in just a short time, Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Crowds would lay palms in the way, shout, Hosanna, save us now. A few days later, He would be arrested. He would institute the Lord's Supper. He would uh, be arrested. He would be taken to Calvary. He would be crucified. He would be buried in a tomb. And I wonder just how many people then realized the significance of that historic event. Jesus' message from the very beginning was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And some could see that, but many, including the religious leaders of the day, were blind to that. The events of Jesus' ministry, including what we call Passion Week, happened right before their very eyes. But they did not understand it. They witnessed His triumphant entry, His final days, His crucifixion on Golgotha. But many could not understand its true importance. For some, they saw, as I mentioned this, uh, during the singing, that, that song, uh, Finish the Victory Cry. For some, when they saw him bow his head and, and die, they saw it as the final silencing of a heretical and political agitator. Some saw it as the unfortunate demise of a good but misguided teacher. For others like Pilate, it was the necessary sacrifice to quell the riot and to save face before Caesar. But their preoccupation with physical or earthly matters caused them to altogether miss or at least misinterpret the spiritual significance of things happening right in front of them. And I wonder in our day, if we can recognize the significant events that happened before us. When we read the story of Jesus, when we hear his, the words of Matthew and, and the other writers of the Bible, do we, do we hear, do we see a man who did a lot of nice things, helped a lot of people, performed some really, really awesome miracles? Or do we recognize Him as the Lord of heaven and earth? When you listen to his message, I wonder how you hear it. Is it the shepherd's call that you hear? It causes you to follow him? Or is it something entirely different to you? The truth is that significant events are happening all around us today. And I'm not talking about the things that go on in Washington, D.C. or the things that happen in New York State 
or around the world in China and Russia and North Korea. The significant events in our day aren't necessarily happening in the White House or in the halls of Congress or even along the border. There's something greater happening in our world. It's something in the spiritual realm. There's a war going on. There's a battle, as Paul says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells us to put on spiritual armor that we might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Because Satan is at work today, just as he was in the stories of the Bible. And he continues to walk about as a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. But at the same time, God is at work. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it sets over it the lowliest of men. He did it in Daniel's day. He does it today. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He continues to accomplish His purposes today. He still is gathering lost sheep. He still is seeking and saving the lost. He's still drawing men and women to Himself. He's removing their hearts of stone, giving them hearts of flesh. The message of the Gospel is still the same. It's the same as it was back then. Even before Christ came, Isaiah said, Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then in Jesus' day, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Peter said, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He died and rose again a long time ago. But the spiritual significance still remains. And I wonder if you see it. Some cannot see it because they're spiritually blind. Back in chapter 15, Jesus called them blind guides because Paul says, the God of this world has blinded their minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see the signs around them. They don't recognize the significance of these events, the truth about who Jesus is. Easter has become about a a rabbit that lays eggs. Think about that. They don't recognize what it really means. They can't see the signs. They're, they're maybe smart and intelligent people in all physical and earthly matters, smarter than many of us. But when it comes to Christ, they cannot interpret or discern what God has spoken about His Word or about His Christ. But even as believers, as those of us who claim to have recognized the impact of Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead, we are often like the disciples. We're unable to discern spiritual matters of eternal importance. Why? Because we're often consumed with earthly things. We're either distracted from grasping the spiritual truths or we misinterpret them for worldly, lesser meaning. We've been enabled to see and understand, yet how often are we slow of heart to believe? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a disciple of Christ, then I beg you this morning, very simply, turn to Christ and be saved. Trust in Him for salvation from sin. 
and those of us who already know Christ. Hear the words that Jesus said to the disciples because they still ring true for us today. Beware of leaven. There's leaven. It's the false teaching. Christians must guard against the dangerous leaven of false teachers that they be not deceived or led astray. How can we beware like Jesus commanded? Well, we can remember what He's done. One of the reasons that we come to church as we sing, as we remind ourselves what God has done and what God is doing in your life and in my life, and we encourage one another. We can carefully meditate on His words, which is why it's so important that we spend time in His Word, not just in church, but on our own, and we think about it and we dwell on it and we, and we, 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 we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We'll sing a closing song in just a little bit. Behold the Lamb of God. It's how we beware, we behold the Lamb. Because important events are happening even today. Things are happening in the world all around us. Flick on the news and you'll see lots of things that are happening and some will say, can you see what's happening? Our world is, 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 is going to hell. But as Christians, we can look at those same events and see the hand of God. He's working. He's been faithful. He's promised things and He's fulfilling His promises. He is not forgotten about His people. So the question is, will we grasp them as God intends for us to? Will we see them and respond to them in faith? Or will they pass us by even while we search for significance? Will we miss them because we're too concerned with lesser things? Whether or not we recognize it, there are matters of eternal significance before us. The question is, will, will you see it? Will I see it? We pray that God would open our eyes, not just to salvation, but to see through His Word what He is accomplishing in this, in this world today.